Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me just say that, thanks to Arches National Park in Utah, I now officially have a t-shirt with an image of myself on it. And even better, it's an image of a photo I took of you looking all artsy by the Delcote Arch. Yeah, it's a great photo. Got a lot of love on Instagram when I first posted it. It was taken of me from behind, kind of gazing off at this iconic arch in the park. And it was transformed into a Parklandia t-shirt for our online merch store with the caption, get over it. As in, like, yeah, I wear clothes with pictures of myself on it. Get over it. Or, you know, get over it, like the fact that this is a massive arch. Sure, yeah. I, it's a double entendre, I guess. I remember having this, like, hilarious interaction with a barista at a coffee shop in Chicago a few months ago. I was wearing the shirt of myself at Arches, as I'm wont to do, and I was patiently waiting for my coffee. Or It was September, so I, I think I was getting, like, a pumpkin spice latte, since that's the time of year where I exclusively eat pumpkin spice-flavored things. And the barista came up to me and he asked me about the shirt because he was from Utah and it caught his eye because obviously the arch. Naturally. And then I had to explain to him that the shirt is an image of myself. And he was like, oh, wow, I had no idea. And then we both had a good laugh. And hopefully he was laughing with me and not at me. But I, I wasn't clear on that. Either way, the shirt accomplished what we wanted to do, catch people's attention, and promote the podcast yeah. and national parks. I know. It was great. And honestly, I'm super proud to be a human billboard for Arches National Park. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Brad. This is Parklandia, a production of iHeartRadio. We packed up our stuff in Chicago, sold our loft, and now we're traveling the country with our dog, Finn, in an RV, exploring America's national parks. <laughs> and today's episode is about Arches National Park in Utah. When it comes to iconic national images for national parks, Arches mm-hmm. is right up there with the Grand Canyon, and then there's like Old Faithful at Yellowstone and the Bat Cave at Carlsbad Caverns, but especially the Delicate Arch, which is so popular that it's featured on Utah's license plate. Yes, it's a biggie. This place is super significant and a big bucket list priority for both of us once we started living and traveling in the RV. And it was actually one of the first national parks we visited once we made that official leap from Chicago to RV. Oh, yeah, that's right. And fittingly, it was the second national park we visited on our cross-country road trip after Gateway Arch National Park in St. Louis. So we literally Mm -hmm. went from arch to arch. Yeah, we did. And that was actually super inadvertent. We didn't plan that. But, like, we realized once we got to arches in Utah, we're like, wait a second. We went from the Gateway Arch to arches, like— That's magical. Yeah, it works for a lot of reasons, not just because it was poetic, but the weather at the time of the year was just perfect, too. Yeah, I know. It really was. We got to Moab, Utah, where Arches is located in southeastern Utah in early December. I think it was literally like December 1st. And it was chilly at first. It was pretty brisk, but also super sunny and especially comfortable for hiking in light jackets. And I was wearing my Doc Martens, which are really not at all appropriate hiking attire since they're about as heavy, heavy as anvils and just really cumbersome. But 
It looks good, and like they're now on a T-shirt with myself. So yes, and but for the hikes, they were they were fine. Um, we didn't do yeah. anything too long or too strenuous. Just some of the big popular spots there. Yeah, nothing too hardcore. We had a limited amount of time at Arches, so we really wanted to maximize it by visiting the big like icon trails. And we had to start with the Delicate Arch Trail, of course. You cannot come to Arches and not do this trail. It should be like priority number one. And for us, it it was. I think going to Arches and not doing Delicate Arch would be like going to Universal Studios and skipping Harry Potter World, which is really the only reason to go to Universal Studios these days, to Ooh, be honest. That's a little bit of a burn there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think you know how we feel about Universal Studios. Spoiler alert, we're not enthusiastic about it. Harry Potter World is another story, though. Anyway, the Delicate Arch Trail is a must, and not just because it's featured on the license plates Mm -hmm. or our T-shirts. It's popular for a really good reason. It's the perfect length, the perfect amount of comfort, elevation gain, and it's one of those trails that is just like an epic wow factor. Grand finale, once you come around the final bend, and then you see the arch itself surrounded by hikers getting photos. Um, I mean, it was just like this beautiful like landscape of the LaSalle Mountains in the background and mm-hmm. everything. All of it. I know. It's really one of those kind of grand finale trails. You walk up to it. It's a fun trail. And then you round a corner. And it's like, wow. Oh, my God. This is overwhelming in the best possible way. And it's no wonder this place is so iconic. And this arch in particular. It's photogenic as hell. And especially in a cloudless sunny day like when we visited where everything's just so pristine and majestic. I loved it. Yeah, it really is a ma- uh, an amazing sight. But let's start talking about the trail leading up to this. Trails. It all started for us at the visitor center in Moab, just off the main road, which was super close to the RV park where we reserved a couple nights. The visitor center is at the base of this massive plateau called the Colorado Plateau. And the, there's this main park road that really twists and turns up to the top of the plateau where more than 2,000 arches are scattered across the colorful landscape. Yeah, some of those arches are very tiny, and then some are huge. Mm-hmm. And you, many of them you could see from your car or RV, um, and then there's some that you can't just see at all. Uh, then there are ones like the Delicate Arch, which is so major that there's like a parking lot by the trailhead that fills up fast. So get there early, especially if you have an RV, because uh, you need to snag one of those uh, few large vehicle parking spots. Yeah, you really do. Fortunately, we were fine, and we were able to get a spot, no problem. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we were visiting off-season, since most of the parks, 1.4 million annual visitors tend to visit in the spring or early fall. We were right at the cusp of winter. And, like, literally, it snowed a lot the very next day. So it was—we we really lucked out with the timing on arches, although the snow totally messed up our plans to visit Canyonlands National Park nearby. But That was a total whatever. bummer. Uh, in, like, terms of arches specifically, the weather worked out perfectly in our favor, yes. though. Yeah, it really was an ideal day to visit. We mentioned in our Mesa Verde episode from Season 1 that the park road there felt similar to the park road arches. And I— I stand by that. I think they're both these long, zigzaggy roads that start by visitor centers and then meander up to the top of these plateaus or mesas. And Arches is very Mesa Verde-like, except less green, more desert. Yeah, if you drive along this like main park road, it's super easy to find all of the park's trails, and everything is like either directly along the route or right off the route, including the Delicate Arch. Right. So it's it's very convenient, very easy to navigate here, which is so refreshing, especially when you're driving in an RV and you don't want to be like kind of fiddling around or going down these narrow, off-the-beaten-path roads. So once you get to a Delicate Arch and you park, you start the trail, and one of the first things you see that we saw was this tiny ranch home. Which, yes, tiny. Yeah, tiny. Like um, It's like the OG tiny house. And it was built by John Wesley Wolf in the late 1800s. This was the time when ranchers were migrating to the area in droves, well before Arches became a national monument in 1929, and then ultimately upgraded to a national park in 1971. And remnants of their inhabitants is still there today, as we saw with this itty-bitty little ranch home. Yeah, it's crazy to imagine people living in this environment. Uh, It was so much more desolate at the time than it is today, and especially in such small living quarters. The house was super small. I mean, it makes our RV look like a huge, like, mansion. I know, and that's really saying something. It was basically just, like, one rickety little room, and 
This was for like multiple people, which is unfathomable. That's not a lot of personal space, apparently. No, definitely not. Like it's literally no bigger than most people's bathrooms. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the trail continues on for about a mile and a half after that, um, all the way up to the arch itself. Um, there's, like, steady inclines. It's, like, a moderately difficult, like, trail, especially since it's, like, in direct sunlight the entire time without any shade. Yeah, there's really no tree cover here. And even though it's pretty easy to do and not that long of a trail, it's an adventure experience for sure. You cross this massive expanse of slick rock at one point, and the trail then dips down into these little grottos filled with shrubs. And then you shimmy along the side of a cliff as well with the trail running along the cliff wall until it ultimately rounds the corner to Delicate Arch. And then you have this show-stopping view. Yeah, it's such a beautiful and incredible sight. It's like seeing the Statue of Liberty for the first time. It's such an American treasure. I know, yeah. It is like the Statue of Liberty, except instead of being made by France and gifted to the U.S., it was made by Mother Nature over the course of millions and millions of years. And this thing absolutely looks like a work of masterful art. It's made of sandstone that's been whittled by wind and water, and it's got these vivid tints of orange and red. It honestly looks too good to be real. When we made it to the end of the trail, we definitely made sure to sit down and enjoy the views for a while. We even packed lunches, and then we ate it. We just laid down on the sandstone for a bit to, like, drink it all in. Yeah, we did, and kind of um, ward off all the crows. There was a bunch of large crows that were, like, slowly inching their way closer to us, trying to eat our eat our lunch. And I'm like, no, you need to. <laughs> and this is why you this don't feed the animals. Don't feed the animals, because then they get used to it, and they'll just, like, fly all around you and hop around. It's It's a lot. And then, so we had lunch, we kind of relaxed a little bit, and then you went scurrying down by the arch, and I was afraid that you would slip and plummet, but it all worked out fine, and I got some really cool, like, adventurous, hands-on photos of you being a daredevil. I'm not a daredevil. You are. I'm just like, of a dare- I, I wouldn't know, do that. Doing things. Like, yeah. It's fun. It is fun. And there were other people doing it. You weren't the only one, so I was somewhat reassured. You are listening to Parklandia from iHeartRadio. We'll be back in just a moment to talk more about Arches National Park. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Brad. This is Parklandia. And today we're talking about Arches National Park in Utah. Geography. Yes, and we've touched on the geography and the landscape here already a little bit, but we want to get more into the details of Arches National Park and what makes this place so incredible from a historical perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So Arches, this place took a long process to form and get where we are today. Like, Mother Nature really took her time with this one, and you you can't rush art like this. It's it's too good. No, not at all. And in fact, many of these arches took hundreds of millions of years to form. And it all started when this part of Utah was actually under a sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the best parks always start underwater in some form. Because we learned similar things when we were at Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico and Guadalupe Mountains in Texas, and how both of those were under subtropical waters at one point, and then look how amazing they turned out. Yeah, that's so true. And just like those parks, uh, things started to take a shape once the sea began to evaporate, leaving salt beds throughout the southeastern Utah. Yeah, so over time, these salt beds were once again covered in water and other sed- sediments as rivers began to flow through the region. Meanwhile, this area turned into a desert environment during the Jurassic period. So basically, while T-Rexes and Velociraptors terrorized poor herbivores, Utah was steadily transforming into a wild landscape of sandstone art. Yeah, the sandstone didn't take shape at arches right away, though. First, it was all covered by lots of sediment material, which was also heavy. and made the lower salt beds heat up and actually turn into a liquid, basically like lava. <laughs> yeah, so things started to shift around to the earth, and some of that liquid salt burst through the upper layers, creating these salt domes, which made curves in the sandstone. And with this foundation in place, erosive wind and water over the years then began to chip away at the salt and sediment and expose the sandstone underneath. Yeah, arches throughout the park are many different shapes and sizes, but they're all continuing to erode today. Yes, and there's a lot to take in. The whole process sounds like a super elaborate and complicated recipe from like a serious cookbook that's as thick as a phone book. It's really well, kind of complex. It does take a lot of time to make these things come out of the ground and turn out good. Takes time, yeah. In terms of, if we're like, you know, cookbook comparison terms, this isn't one of like Rachel Ray's 30-minute like microwave meals or whatever. It's more like one of those Julia Child recipes that takes like a full day to create with a whole shopping cart's worth of ingredients I've never even heard of. Perfect comparison. Yeah, thanks. So when I get confused, I, I this is like a safe space for me. I tend to compare things to meal preparation and it really kind of calms me down and puts things in perspective and I can I can like... Go with it. Are you relaxed enough to talk more about the history of arches? I, yeah, I think so. Thank you for checking. Sure thing. So in addition <laughs> to uh, lava-like salt and sandstone sculpting, arches has more history relating to humans as well. Right. History. So people first started living in this region some 10,000 years ago, which feels like this morning compared to the two, 300 or so million years when this place started to take shape. But but still, that's a, lo- that's a long time ago. Yeah, native peoples like ancestral Pudbloans and Fremont tribes first came here to hunt, farm, and gather. They grew their crops like squash, beans, and corn. I mean, it all sounds very similar to like when we talked about Mesa Verde, actually. Yeah, it really does. The, the crops, the zigzaggy road, the plateaus, all of it, very Mesa Verde-y. But a big difference is that this area wasn't abruptly and mysteriously abandoned overnight like Mesa Verde. No, it actually had steady human occupancy in some form or another ever since then. Um, Ute and Paiute Indians lived here as well, followed by Spanish missionaries and European Americans. Even Mormons set up shop here for a bit before realizing how impossibly difficult it was to farm in this harsh desert, desert terrain. But other ranchers definitely gave it a go, like John Wolfe, who we mentioned earlier. Right. And then finally, after centuries of human occupancy, successful or not, 
Utah locals finally got wise to the idea that, oh, hey, these sandstone arches are incredibly unique and special, and maybe they deserve some federal protection. Yeah, I love how Arches got its, like, start as a national monument. Mm -hmm. It's a heartwarming story of passionate Moab residents trying to get the attention of the federal government and the rare example of, like, it actually working out. It's it's beautiful. This Moab newspaper writer named John Taylor was so inspired by the sandstone formations pretty much right in his backyard— that he wrote about them enough to catch the attention of the government. Enough so that President Hoover designated the region a national monument in 1929. Like, what an uplifting story. It's, this, this is so rare. It's usually just kind of complicated and tedious, but this is, this is beautiful. Yeah, and even more uplifting, it was upgraded to a national park in 1971 with more than 76,000 acres of land. And today it's one of the most beloved and visited national parks in the country. Magnificent Vistas. So there's obviously a lot more to see and do here than the Delicate Arch. So once we were done with that trail, we hopped back into our RV and we drove to Double Arch, which was a super easy trail and super easy to park at, even for a 26-foot RV. Plenty of room here. Yeah, the whole park was generally very RV-friendly. When we unhooked mm-hmm. our trailer down by the visitor center, though, since we had asked like the park ranchers, they suggested, like, don't take the trailer in, just do the RV uh, because it's such a windy, narrow road that it could yeah. be hard for RVs much larger than ours, but ours worked out perfectly and just fine. Yeah, it really did. And that was a good suggestion from the park rangers because I don't think we would have realized that. We didn't realize how like narrow and windy the road was, but it turned out to be an easy drive with just the RV and no trailer. But then again, I was doing none of the actual driving myself, so I was just kind of assuming the driving was easy. It looked easy. You look like you had a nice time with it. Yeah, no, it really wasn't that bad. Um, but the double arch is, like, pretty epic. I mean, mm-hmm. if the delicate arch is the most iconic arch here, then this is a close runner-up. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that's because double arch is the largest arch in the park. So it's not only enormous, but it's like there's two of them right next to each other pretty much. And they're just these gigantic, looming, massive sandstone twins. And I think, <laughs> like when I posted my Instagram about um, the double arch, I refer to it as the Mary-Kate and Ashley of Arches National Park, which is a perfect description, I think, I, I might, if I might say so. And frankly, that should be a t-shirt as well. Yeah, whole line of that totally should have been because this thing is seriously huge. I mean, it is like, even from the parking area, it's gigantic. But then you mm-hmm. walk along the short, flat trail to get close to the base of it, and it really looms above you. Um, some people are just scrambling up the rocks. Um, I mean, it's just like this beautiful little rocky base, and, you know, you can get a little bit closer for pictures, but it's impossible to capture it all in one photo. It, it's just best to stand back. Yeah, it really is. Like, this thing is so huge. Like, climbing at the base would really not really do it justice because you can't see or, like, kind of— capture the whole thing just in like a, a single glance like that. So I think it's best to, yeah, like you said, stand back and kind of drink it all in, in one vista. And Double Arch is located in what's called the windows portion of the park, which has the largest collection of arches. And everything here, pretty much everything, is large and huge, like Double Arch. Yeah, plus since there's like so many arches in close concentration here, you can really see a lot from this one trailhead, including the Cove Arch, Ribbon Arch, and even the Parade of Elephants, which like sounds fun. Yeah, I love it. I love any natural formation that makes me think of Dumbo. Like Parade of Elephants, great name. It, it gets its name because it's a section of sandstone that looks like a lineup of elephants holding each other's tails in a long, single row. And so if you cool. love Dumbo references, you are going to love the fact that this isn't even the only formation here named after elephants. Yeah, it's great. And nearby is another formation called Elephant Butte, which is the tallest point in the park at 5,653 feet of elevation. And that's more than 600 feet above the park road. This is a great hands-on butte for climbers and hikers looking to get off trail a little bit and a little more hands-on. It's not too scary or difficult, as long as you watch your footing and use your hands for balance, too. So... It's good to go off and try that. Then there was that one portion called uh, Devil's Tower. or No, no, no. Devil's Garden. Mm -hmm. Uh, That one is a really, really super popular part. It's Yeah, it's very popular. It sounds less cute than the elephant formations, but it's not as scary as it sounds either. It's actually cool as hell. No pun intended. Devil's Garden, (laughs) cool as hell. 
spell that out for you. Oh, man. Right. We're, we're peeking at dad jokes right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Devil's Garden is located at the very end of the 18-mile park road, home to the only campground in the park. And it's also the longest trail in the park. Yeah. So, you know, I like that because it's lo- any. I always seek out, like, the longest possible trails. And this one's a little over seven miles round trip, which is sounds pretty mar- moderate, actually, even though it's it's marked as strenuous, which... Again, I seek that out. Like strenuous lawn trails, sign me up. But this one is really not too difficult at all. The landscape can get craggy and requires a bit of scrambling, which I think is why it's probably categorized as strenuous. But it's not bad. And I I think as long as you're prepared and have the right footwear and water and stuff, you'll be fine. Yeah, the trail goes by formations like the landscape arch, partition arch, double O arch, and there's that private arch and even the dark angel. Yeah, Dark Angel. It's nice to know that there's a sandstone tower out there named after a defunct Jessica Alba TV series. The names here are great, actually. Like, Elephants and Dark Angels and Devil's Garden. Someone was having a fun day in the office when they named all these things. Right. I mean, it left a mark on all of us. Yes. Yeah, it really did. (laughs) Arches is really killing it with these names here. I mean, Elephants and Devils and Dark Angels. Oh, my. Yeah. It's all of it. Love it. And in case you're looking to get even further off the beaten path, you can get a free permit from the Visitor Center to go backpacking and explore more of the backcountry. Just keep in mind that a good map is pivotal and be prepared with more than enough food and water because the Arches landscape is an expansive, unforgiving desert. So you have to be ready for that and the potential for, like, intense weather. It's not called Devil's Garden for nothing. Let's just say that. Yeah. Another fun fact, though, is that pets are actually permitted at overlooks and on paved roads as long as they're on a leash. They can't take a hike to the delicate arch with you, but they'll love the views just as much from the numerous overlooks. Yeah, that's right. Food. Now it's time to talk about the town of Moab, which is home base to both Arches National Park and Canyonlands National Park nearby. Yeah, this place is also a very popular hub for off-roading, apparently. In general, it's like the ideal for small city people who love hiking, climbing, and outdoorsy mm-hmm. activities. Super outdoorsy. I had heard a lot about Moab before visiting here, and it was always a place I was curious about and kind of wanted to visit. And I'm really glad that we are able to carve out some time to explore the town as well and the small downtown area, too. Especially because we happen to be staying here during Moab's annual Christmas parade. (laughs) And so we were able to watch some of that on our first night after getting some sushi for dinner. Yeah, right. So I know that, like, the Utah desert is not really the optimal place to satisfy a sushi craving, but we really needed it. I think, like, it had been a while since we'd had sushi, and we literally crave it, like, more than any other food. And we were desperate times call for desperate measures. So we're like, yeah, we're in the middle of the, you know, Utah desert, but... I need a spicy tuna roll. But it actually turned out to be really good sushi. Like, it was kind of surprising because it was also quite affordable. Yeah, it was affordable. It was lovely, and it really hit the spot. And another good thing was the restaurant was, like, a block off the main drag through downtown. And it was super warm and cozy. And it had a warm sake. Mm. All of it was just really hitting the spot. And I'm, I'm just warm and cozy thinking about it. Such a happy little nook, that place. Yeah, and the parade was great, too. Such a fun surprise and a great coincidence. I know. Magical. I feel like we needed that holiday cheer, too. This was such a, like, recent stop on our RV journey, and everything was really new, and I was feeling kind of really homesick and emotional, missing Chicago and friends and such. So it really made my heart feel better to watch these floats go by, and it was like a Christmas miracle. We didn't time it, but we're like, oh, there's a Christmas parade. Let's... It really partake. was, like, such a beautiful time. I mean, I just love when we're taking this journey yeah. through the country and we, like, randomly stop at places. And then there's a block party it's celebrating great. the 100 years of this ice cream shop mm-hmm. or the annual Christmas parade or things like that. Because, like, it just creates these really magical moments where you're right place, right time. And it, you get a lot of these while you're on the road. Yeah, and this is one of those, do. like, super special places. Um I mean, I think the next day we just stayed in the RV park all day because it was basically a blizzard, which Mm -hmm. is not normal for that time. But it's just, it's, uh, you know, great. Yeah, I know. So it was kind of nice. And coming from someone like me who gets so restless Nancy, like it was, it did feel good to like be forced to stay in and relax a little bit. I had no idea it snowed that much in Moab, like ever, let alone early December. Like this was 
caught us totally off guard. And we just happened to be there for it, for this, like, bizarre, crazy snowfall. And, like, yay for that, I guess, because it was really, it actually was super, super pretty and pristine. And it, it just worked out. And it was nice to hole up, watch DVDs, relax in the RV with Finn. And I was also able to sit in the RV parks outdoor hot tub all by myself which was so great just like i had waited to the afternoon where most of the like brunt of the snowfall had somewhat dissipated so like just these like light snow flurries just floating and bobbing around in the hot tub and just you so and just the me. snowflakes and it was a huge hot tub it was like the size of a swimming pool so i could like literally float around and Oh, so great. Yeah, that snow made, like, everything just look like this huge, beautiful painting. The whole landscape, and it was just really beautiful. I mean, it had this the orange sandstone desert with this bright, white, fresh snow. It was mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. Yeah, the whole thing, like, looked like a giant creamsicle. It was, like, seeing these orange rocks with, capped off with, like, these layers of perfectly white snow, fluffy snow. It was, it was incredible. So after enough snow had melted and Moab had thawed, we went back to the town again the next day to check on some more, like, local spots, mm-hmm. like Moab Brewery, which seemed like the largest and most popular place in town. Yep, making the rounds. And Moab Brewery was the one that I think we had heard about the most. It definitely came up at the top of, like, all our Google searches. So if nothing nothing else, they have amazing SEO. Yeah, it was a fun place. Um, there was a bar area, a main dining area, a merchandise store. And they even make their own gelato. Mm-hmm. And they also operate a small distillery. So they make spirits like vodka and gin. And this place is really doing it all. It's crazy. Yeah, it's definitely a great place for beer, especially. And they have lots of options on tap um, in cans and bottles, plus their own root beer. Jeez, I know. Really impressive. It's one of those places that has something for everyone, from amber lagers and IPAs, which I love, to pilsners and nut brown ales and probably anything else you can imagine. Yeah, and it's always fun to sit at a main bar and just have some drinks. Uh, the food is a bit all over the place, um, but it's got things like poutine, hummus, pretzels, and chili, and other surprising things like ravioli and euros. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, a little little random. I think you're probably better off uh, coming for beer and then some standard snacks like wings and stuff like that. Because things are a bit, like, like like you said, a little all over the place and daring. <laughs> Yeah, I remember din- after dinner and drinks there, we tried to go to the, what was that movie, Fantastic Beasts, oh, okay. um, at the local movie theater. Obsessed. Uh, but for some reason, the theater closed early and wouldn't unlock their doors for us, even though they could, like, clear us, see us, like, at the right. doors. Like, like, excuse me. Like, you yeah. could just, like, <laughs> say, hey, I'm sorry, we closed down early because there's not enough attendance. Great. Tell me that. I know. Maybe um, you want to yelp about it. And I don't even, I never do that. We went to some, like, tavern for a nightcap uh, afterwards. Yeah, so that was a kind of fun alternative, I think. Although, nightcap might be a stretch. Like, this wasn't anything snazzy or fancy. I think you wound up having some sort of, like, Red Bull shot or something. Like, what did, do you remember what you had? You had something, and you're like, you were familiar with what it was. And I'm like, you seem a little too comfortable with this Red Bull drink. Like, you... <laughs> I mean, it was probably before. just like, a, um, let's just say it was a Jaeger bomb. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember what it was. But I think it was, it was a bomb of some sort. Like, it was a Vegas bomb. Oh, it was right. a Vegas bomb. What's in a Vegas bomb? Red Bull, right? <sighs> yes. Red Bull and stuff. <sighs> I can't tell you because it's been too many years since I've actually had one or ordered one. Yeah. It's for the best. I don't, I don't remember what I had, but it was at this place called World Famous Woody's Tavern. Which is, okay, the name is appealing, but I think it's, like, n- not at all world famous, obviously. Like, I, no one outside of Moab probably knows what it is. It was perfectly fine, though, and, like, good for kind of basic drinks. It was a little rustic and, like, woodsy in there. It was the type of place where you, like, just go up to the counter and have, like, a whiskey and Coke or something like that. Or a Vegas bomb, apparently. Yeah, and now we've pretty much wrapped things up on our time in Moab and Arches, uh, but we're going to talk about animals and wildlife and ecology right after this quick break. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe 
Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Brad. This is Parklandia. And today we're talking about Arches National Park in Utah. Ecology. Getting to a segment here about ecological concepts pertaining to roads and habitat fragmentation at arches. So roads and highways can pose a big threat to animals that require large swaths of land to survive. I think that's something we can all, that's like a given. And that's especially pertinent here at arches because the roads can be scary, dangerous to animals, and human thoroughfares often stop movement between neighboring populations of a single species, resulting in habitat fragmentation and loss of connectivity between populations. Yeah, like one of those things are the desert bighorn sheep. And these sheep are native to the deserts um, of the Intermountain and southwestern U.S. and Mexico. They're commonly depicted in the Puebloan and Fremont pictographs in the area. Um, they're very different from other bighorn sheep and other mammals, for that matter, because they can go into these long periods of time without water, and their body temperature can fluctuate a bit to help them deal with the intense heat, and the cold in their own desert home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the desert is no joke. And because desert bighorns are extremely vulnerable to livestock diseases as well, like anthrax and scabies, and because European explorers and settlers have been fond of hunting them since the 16th century, populations of desert bighorns in Utah were in a steady decline. And in 1975, the state's population numbered around 1,000 animals until the 1980s when scientists began relocating them to nearby Canyonlands National Park. Yeah, now there's around 3,000 desert bighorns in Utah and 75 in Arches um, National Park. You can see them along Highway 191 south of the Visitor Center. 
Uh, the current problem is that the infant mortality rate of the desert bighorns has been extremely high lately, possibly due to that habitat fragmentation and increased traffic on roads between Moab and the park. Um, scientists are like still studying whether the deaths um, of so many desert bighorn lambs like might also be due to predators like mountain lions, coyotes, mm-hmm. and foxes. But, you know, we have to be very careful when we're driving on these um, roads. Right. Like if you think about it, like we're at a point in the national park system where um, this year for the first time ever, there's more visitors at national parks than theme parks. And so when you're driving, now let's say that we increased it from one desert bighorn got hit last year. Now we have this increase in uh, parks and now two more are getting hit. You know, how does that take an impact as we grow at these national parks? We just have to start to really pay attention Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, not be wild, not be distracted too much. If you're the driver, you have to focus on the road. I know it sounds silly that we have to remind this, but, like, I'll catch myself Mm -hmm. doing it. Matt catches me doing it and, you know, and so, you know, it's really important to watch those roads. Yeah, especially – and it – it's, like, understandably distracting when you're in a beautiful landscape like Arches. Like, there's so much on either side of you and in front of you and behind you that you kind of, like, are drawn to look at. And so it's hard. It can, yeah. it can be difficult to, like, maintain focus on the road ahead of you. But it's also the double-edged sword of increased visitorship to national parks into places like Arches National Park in particular, where it's wonderful and great that so many people are interested in it and planning vacations around it. And that's awesome. Exactly. But it also poses an increased threat to the wildlife here, like the desert bighorn sheep. So caution at all times and focus and all of that, you know, because you can have a great time here while also being safe and keeping the animals safe. Yeah. And these desert bighorn sheep are just so beautiful and such an important part of the uh, ecology. I mean, they've been here for tens of thousands of years. It's not like they're new or they're an invasive species. They're originally from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, they've been through enough. Like, the anthrax and, and hunters and traffic, like, they've had <laughs> an ordeal. So They've had to you know, deal with a lot of different things to, predators, to survive, right? Geez. I mean. Yeah, it's a lot. And then also, because Arch is located in a high semi-arid desert, the climate here is extremely variable. So you have this whole thing to, to factor in. Animals have to be ready to face both snowstorms in the winter, which we've, we've been through, snowstorms, <laughs> yes. and sweltering summer temperatures that can uh, exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit, in addition to water scarcity. So animals are often nocturnal, which means active at night to kind of get out of this the most intense heat and stuff. And they're also crepuscular, which means they're most active during dawn and dusk. And then there are really only just a few that are diurnal, meaning active during the day. And that's because of these harsh, brutal temperature swings, potentially. Yeah, and there's a lot of beautiful animals here in Arches. I mean, next we have the kangaroo rat. I mean, these little rodents live pretty, like, stressful desert lives. For starters, they really can't take the heat, and they limit to the amount of time they spend away from their, like, cool, dry burrows, um, sometimes plugging into the entrance of their burrows to keep it cooler. Um, But they also come out at night when the temperatures drop and it's dark enough to hop around unseen. Um, They are bipedal. Uh, only using their two back feet for locomotion, sort of like a kangaroo. Um, They collect seeds and vegetations and the occasional insect if they can get it. Um, Everybody in the desert wants to eat them. Coyotes, (laughs) bobcats, rattlesnakes, owls. I mean, really, you can just name it, and they are the bottom of the chain almost. Oh, poor things. But they are fast and have extremely sensitive hearing, so they have that going for for them. They also don't drink water at all, which is... Crazy. Their bodies produce water by metabolizing the seeds and plants they eat. So that's also a benefit. They don't need to be hopping around in, you know, vulnerable, exposed desert landscape to get water. Yeah, that's really crazy, isn't it? When you think about that, like, what? Mm -hmm. They just get water from their food. Mm-hmm. That's such a little amount. It. It's know. crazy. Yeah. There's also those pinion jays. Um, the flocks of pinion jays can be found around the park, uh, traveling in large, like upwards of like 500 birds at a time. Noisy little like flocks. They're like scurrying the ground and the tree canopies for insects and pine seeds, especially those of the pinion pine, which are essentially pine nuts. 
Yeah, you know, the ones that like cost around $30 a pound at the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, they have expensive taste. These birds look like small blue-gray crows, kind of. They're very closely related to crows. And they live in arches year-round. They cache food, carrying up to 40 seeds at a time in their expandable esophagus and storing them in a hiding place to eat during times when food is limited. So they're quite, like, industrious animals here and have a, like, large appetite. Yeah, the diversity in arches, like National Park and the wildlife, is just so amazing. Yeah. Um, I would say that's one of my favorite parts, but I'm not going to, because I think <laughs> it's time that we actually share what our favorite part of Arches National Park is. My favorite. So... It's the part of the episode where we share with each other our favorite thing about arches. We haven't told each other what our favorite things are, so it's a heartwarming surprise for both of us. And I love it. Brad loves it. Do you want to talk about what your favorite part about arches was? Now, this is a tough one because arches is so beautiful and so diverse. I mean, all these animals Mm -hmm. are really amazing, and the way that they survive is so specific to them. That's really amazing, an amazing fact, but I'm not going to say that's my favorite. Um, I'm going to be really basic and say that the delicate arch is my favorite. How original. I know. How original. But it does come up with that great T-shirt. And that T-shirt, it's so funny because, like, I think of it like, stop being so delicate. Get over it. Hmm. Right? Oh. Because it's Is that what the intended meaning of that was? I'm I'm actually, I was never very clear, but I, yeah. Yeah. So it's stop being a delicate arch. Get over it. (laughs) Oh. Wow. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, yeah, I like that shirt even more now. There's a lot of meanings behind it. A lot of, a lot of layers there. Just like the uh, sandstone layers. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, Delicate was just so beautiful. I mean, a stunning. That was a uh, great It was hike. a fun trail, like, hike. Um, there's a lot of scrambling, and it, it was fun. And we actually yeah. took uh, some of those shots of those, like, Breckenwood Spacas when we got up there. We had, like, these Ooh. little mini ones. Yeah. Because we just visited the distillery in uh, mm, in Breckenridge, Colorado. Yeah, yeah, that was wonderful. So I think my favorite was probably the next day during the snowstorm and just like seeing it and drinking that site in because it was exquisite. And no- that's kind of surprising for me because I I'm not much of a snow person. It, really it usually annoys me. One could and say you were soaking it in. Yeah. I, oh, I was in the yeah, hot tub, um, <laughs> but. I just thought it looked really amazing, and I've never been in, like, a snowy desert environment before, so it was an experience and incredible. Normally, I only like snow if it's, like, a ski destination, and I can, like, get there, spend a couple days, and leave and go back someplace where there's no snow. Yeah, I would have loved to go to Canyonlands. That would have been amazing mm -hmm. because it was just so close, but because it was snowing, um, they only share one... Um, oh, yeah. snowplow between the two parks and because Arches was more visited they were taking care of them Priority. and then they couldn't really get to the canyon mm-hmm. that side so I'll have to go back um, we will. to actually we will have to go back to yeah, please take that me. more yeah. Yeah. <laughs> please take me <laughs> but I know that was it was so cool we, we got to like the entrance of Canyonlands pretty much yeah we <laughs> the did the long snowy drive I was worried some like, are we going to get stuck up here because we had the RV obviously and it's not an ideal vehicle to drive through snow, but it it weren't it like worked out fine. So I think we should also talk about three things that we would recommend bringing to Arches National Park. Water. Oh yeah, water. Lots of water. Yeah, desert environment always water. Yeah, and I know mm-hmm. that's silly because you should bring water to every national park, but this one is one of those ones. Even when we went, it was cool, but just because yeah. it's cool does not mean your body is hydrating. Um, you have to hydrate when you're in any desert environment, no matter what temperature it is. Yeah, you really do. And it can be deceptive, too, because if you're there, like, when we were there on the snowy day, then your body doesn't have, like, the n- most obvious reaction where it's, like, thirsty or whatever. But, like, even if it's cold and chilly and snowy and wet or whatever, like, still you need to drink a ton of water. And then also sunscreen sun protection, hats, sunglasses, all of it, because there's really no tree cover here. It's wide open, exposed desert, especially the portions of trails that are just on these wide, vast, slick rocks. So it's just you and like the direct sun and it's pretty high elevation. So it hits you and impacts you more directly. Yeah. And this isn't like one of those huge parks where you're going on a lot of like trips. Now, if you're back like 
backpacking and like backcountry traveling, like that's one thing. Like don't like you have, there's more you have to bring. But like for oh, this right, one, yeah. it's just really like snacks, water, and sun protection. Yeah, and little it's bits of Breckenridge. Not really hard. Vodka, yeah, want. Breckenridge vodka shooters. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you want, that's on you. But um, the other thing too, like if you are going into the backcountry or going off the main trails and stuff, be sure and bring maps. It, it helps to print out maps or bring a map book or something because unsurprisingly, there's really no service. So you can't be using like your phone GPS or anything like that. So it would not be good to be lost out there. It's since it's such a kind of this plain desert um, landscape, there's no like distinct landmarks to help guide you necessarily if you are like unfortunate enough to be lost out there. So best to, you know, over prepare. Go to mapquest.com, download a download a map. Yeah. And I think it's like safe to say that Arches is one of the most iconic destinations in the entire country. Um it's really one of those points where you just get to really enjoy it and watch it and take it all in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is one of those places that more than lives up to the hype. This iconic site like the Delicate Arch and the rest of the park itself is absolutely worth a visit. And then also like no matter how high our expectations are, it's gonna it's gonna exceed them. Like we had an incredible time here and I cannot wait to go back. You've been listening to Parklandia, a show about national parks. Parklandia is a production of iHeartRadio. Created by Matt Kerouac, Brad Kerouac, and Christopher Haziotis. Produced and edited by Mike Johns. Our executive producer is Christopher Haziotis. Our researcher is Jesslyn Shields. A special thanks goes out to Gabrielle Collins, Crystal Waters, and the rest of the Parklandia crew. And hey, listeners, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people like you find our show. You can keep up with us on social media as well. Check out our photos from our travels on Instagram at Parklandia Pod and join in on the conversation in our Facebook group, Parklandia Rangers. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.